how unpatriotic do you have to be to call the police on somebody who's blasting? Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, oh, it's great. Like, you know, those I, people over there acting free. Police, quick. Yeah, I know. They'd 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 uh, turn us into the redcoats in no time. Yes. Yeah. And it's good to know. That's that's another reason to do fireworks. It's good to know. Okay, that person would totally. Yeah. There, that guy's a royalist. That, over there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> there's no freedom over there. Right. Yeah, you need to just just have copies of the Declaration of Independence and uh, hand them out. Well, how does that go? Uh, you you end up saying, well, actually, our state I'm, law doesn't allow us to. Do. <laughs> All of a sudden, everybody becomes like, yo, you know, we're. Yeah, States I don't rights. know. I, this this is the the whole the the whole business of in just the definition of freedom is it it's resting on something so much different in two uh, in the two different situations, or maybe it's not. It, maybe it's just you know there might not be as much distance as we think, and that's a problem. <laughs> there should be a lot more distance. So, I mean, we. Yeah, the, 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 the whole, uh, you know, our, our whole, um, like we, we're just such a legalistic people in general. What do you mean? We're in, we're, we're in, we're in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. I, well, I, well, if we can't make it, it's no wonder we should have known, uh, we should have known when COVID hit that people would be calling the police on folks, telling on folks, because we've yeah. had plenty other many other examples of what that looked like with Fourth of July, right? I mean, I don't right. know. I, again, I don't know how you, if anything, wouldn't you just go to your neighbor and say, "Hey, man, y'all be careful because y'all got stuff coming over in the, my side of the yard and things are getting out of hand," you yeah. know? So just, hey, love what you're doing. Have a great time. Just, just be careful. Right? Yeah. I, I don't want you to well, buy I, me a new house. <laughs> and I mean, I and do. I think that there's not even the the question isn't even. Um, I mean the, the the question of safety versus you know we, should something that's not safe be illegal? We don't even know really how to answer that, and I think that's that's because we we don't actually know the place of the government, right? Like the government, like that that is your that is your neighborly duty, right? To go talk to your neighbor. That's what neighbors do. Um that's not what police officers are for. I mean, that's not their job to keep everyone from ever doing anything that might hurt themselves. Or, I mean, it's just the, just the, but, but we don't even have a sense of neighborliness. Um, Well, we were talking about this earlier because we don't have that sense of self-government. We don't have a, a, we don't have, uh, even a category of self-government, right? So our, um, like our, I mean, even if you think about the kind of metaphor system that we is fundamental to our cosmology in the modern world, right? When we, when we talk about why are things the way they are, we talk about laws, the physical, the laws of nature, the, the laws of physics, the, laws of biology that sort of thing our whole our whole cosmic imagination 
is that we've got a giant legal system um, that is pressing everything into its shape. Um, and <laughs> and so we think that's what legal, we think that's what our legal system then is for. Um, you know, why do you make a law? Well, cause a law is going to press the society into the shape we want it to be in. Mm. Um, it's such a, it's a completely different understanding of law. Um, and it's a complete, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly new metaphor system cosmologically. It's like the cosmological metaphor system that we're using is not even very old. Wait, um, wait, but so, it's, so are you saying, are you saying, and I think I understand what you're saying. You're saying instead of the cosmos operating on us and how we should live in the world, we're operating on the cosmos and how we want it to bend to our will. Is that what you're ultimately saying? And that's what we do with laws. It's like, let's make a law and then let's make everybody bend to our new concept of the cosmos. Yeah. Well, that, that we think we are creating a society by laws, right? That we're, we're shaping the society into the society via our legal system because that's what we think laws do mm. because we have developed a cosmological legalism <laughs> metaphor system <laughs> like the legalism goes literally goes all the way down to the foundations of our imagination we and so um i mean because they didn't think that the stars moved because of the laws of physics in the ancient world they thought the stars moved because that they loved god so much they couldn't help but dance right that there was a that that it was an that there was a that the motivation was not in response to a um, to a uh, law a, a, a Im, an impersonal law that was established that they couldn't help but I mean so we we don't even we can't even talk the, about the it. categories that you're trying to create is the category you can't the category don't fit together like the two the two understandings of the cosmos a cosmos that's filled to the brim with uh life and desire and joy um you know where trees clap their hands uh in response to god's glory uh where the mountains rise up and and judge uh judge us right where there there where reality is is god's word alive um and so all of it is going to respond all of it is 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 um is going to respond to god right that that's what that's what creation has been doing since the beginning god spoke it into existence and it is returning god glory in by the way it's acting by by the way it's responding to his continued storytelling to his continued speaking um is it, and uh that understanding that that metaphor system is at odds with the modern metaphor system that we use for the way the world exists right we we think the world is the shape it is because the laws are like a hole in the ground that form the puddle that water falls into right you think why does why does a puddle take on the shape that it takes on well because of the constricting nature of the edges of the puddle we think that the laws of nature are that are the edges of the puddle that have created the world into the way 
it is. That's the, it's the way we talk. It's the way it's the, it's the, the thing we assume. Um, and we, and there's not, there's not a competing metaphor system right now because we don't even realize that it's a metaphor. <laughs> okay. 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 So, um, give me an example. Like, like what's, um, I guess we were just talking about with fireworks. That's one, right? Uh, yeah. Well, um, let, let's, we can back up even further. Okay. So it, the, like the, the cosmological legalism, it, we why do things fall because of gravity, right? What, what is gravity? Gra- it's the law of gravity. It just is. It just, it's, it's the fundamental force. Um, you know, it, it, it just is. And so things fall because of gravity. Right. right. So things take the shape they do because there is a fundamental law that holds it into that shape or right. presses it into that shape. Right. And so, um, as conservatives, what we tend to do is say, you know, I don't like the, the books that are in my kid's library. There ought to be a law. Right. We should go fix that problem with a law and we should get to the highest possible legal authority that we can, the most powerful legal authority that we can to get that law passed. So if we can make it all the way to the Supreme Court, all the better. Um, and so, and we think we're actually rescuing society or solving something. Um, but, but laws don't actually do that. Right. So, um, laws, uh, uh, Paul says that the law inflames sin. So what is really going to happen because we've got this false metaphor system, what, uh, we think, Hey, I've just fixed something by passing this law. Well, what's actually going to happen is we're going to inflame the sin with, if we try to use the law to press new desires into the hearts of men, what actually happens is you inflame the desires that are already there, right? Mm. If you, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like diesel fuel. You don't actually even need a spark. You just need pressure to get the diesel fuel to explode, and then the, the explosion provides the energy that moves your car forward. But all you're doing is actually in rapidly increasing the pressure and then it explodes. What the law does to the sin within our hearts when we try to use it legalistically. Um, and it's not, it's not because, uh, it's not because we're not, it's not because Paul isn't after our obedience that he explains that. He just says the law doesn't actually do that. The law doesn't actually, the law can inform our, uh, our desires and tell us what is, what obedience looks like, tell us what love looks like, give us that content, but the law itself can't actually change hearts, right? Um, right, right. That's a, that's a different sort of thing. But then we think, except for in the civic realm there, <laughs> uh, and, so, and so then, I mean, no, no Christians would say that out loud, right? but right. because of because of the assumptions of our whole cosmological metaphor system, that's what actually makes sense to us. So that's what we do. So, uh, so, so maybe, and I, maybe this is me being steeped in that kind of world still, but isn't there a place for the law that is restraining of sin? Because I think that there's a lot of evangelicals, especially when they get into politics, that are looking, okay, yeah, we need – 
certain laws to help us restrain sin from maturing, growing and overwhelming the culture for, you know, like, um, let's just drag queen story hour. You know, that should be illegal, right? Like that's just no, or a certain, like you let's just go with the books, homosexual books inside the bookstores that are training your kids to do homosexual sex, right? Like (laughs) that's, eh. I don't want that in a bookstore, so, but because there is no law, there's a restraint. There is no restraint of sin. And so you see sin just keep on going. And so what you say is, well, there has to be some point in stop where people who aren't Christians still have to fall in line, be restrained. Yeah. Be yeah. restrained yeah. by the law. Right. But, 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 but how, but how does the law do that? Right. It's the law does that through the swift punishment through swift, just punishment, we think that the law does it up front, right? That the law does it yes. on its no, you're at, right on its own, yeah. And so, yeah, so because what, and, and just to speak to that real quick is that you when we um, I've seen people who are for having some sort of death penalty never want to enact, right? They never want to enact the death penalty, but they want it, but they never want to enact it. Like people, people say yes, people who still should be punished, but they don't know what the punishment is, right? So they do want laws there because they think it's on the front end that it restrains sin when really it's on the back. End. That's a good point. It's on the back. It's yeah. on the back and I, end. And that's the, le- that's the legalism is we, ah. that, um, we think that the law is the thing, the shaping. It's the justice is the thing that does the shaping. Oh, that's good, man. Okay. And, yeah. But that's, but people think. People are thinking, oh, our justice is so backwards because people think the law is the justice. Right. So here, here's a good example. My my grandfather was um, – he was a, a an accountant that uh, – he was the hit, the president of the National Association of Certified Public Accountants. He, and Reagan brought him in to rewrite the uh, accounting law um, because it was – it was in shambles, right? It, it, and so he came in and uh, organized and uh, the the accounting lobby. He was an elder in his Lutheran church. And so he had a very deep sense of of you know, the Christian understanding of justice and theft and all that. And so um, they he and his, this group put together um, an, uh, an organized version of, of accounting law um, at the federal level. And um, when uh, there was a, oh, back in the early 2000s, there was a major, like a high level bundle where Enron was caught oh, yeah. um, with its hand, hands in the cookie jar. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, I believe it was Nancy Pelosi held up what was, it was called the Anderson code it was named after my grandpa. Um, held it up and said, this law is not working. We need a law that can't be broken like this, right? The, actually, the law was working exactly the way it should have. Enron got caught. They were going to jail, right? This all, that's that's what, and then everybody would look at it, should look at it and say, oh, don't do what Enron did. I'll go to jail. I'm sure they all went mm. to white collar white collar prisons and you know where they had to stay on their boats and yachts and stuff or whatever i'm i'm i don't i mean i'm not confident that there was a ton of justice but um 
or that because I'm sure people didn't actually get paid back the things that they got right, stolen, right. which is what justice this would really like. is, yeah. Um, but the law actually is functioning the way it should when people get caught, right? That's what. So when people are when when justice is enacted, um, if you so, but what she said was, I want we we need a law that can't be broken like this, right? Um, so be because and so that's like the law of gravity. The law of gravity can't be, be broken, broken right. right? And so it it's a it's a fundamental understanding of the kind of place this is. Um, when you when you come at it with that with that legal system, um, that that understanding of the legal system as a metaphor for our scientific laws or the the laws that we discover, and it's not that things don't fall when you drop them. Um, you know, it's just that uh, w- when you when uh, when we bring our cosmological assumptions to that information, um, our our fundamental legalism to that information, uh, we end up then being informed. You know, we create the kind of society that reflects the kind of place we believe we live in. Right. Um, and so we believe we live in that kind of place. And so you end up with, um, you end up depending, you end up, we need scientists, we need, social social engineers we need uh that that sort of um work is what reforms society right is we got to get the right laws in place we need to get the right we need to get the and and i do think we need good laws in place but we don't even use most of the laws we have in place right now we don't have a legal system that is swift in any sense of the word we don't have a legal system that um, where where everybody top to bottom can expect to receive the same justice. We don't have the the our legal system is um, it is flawed um, because we think it's supposed to be doing something that it's not, and we don't realize that it's the justice that turns around and makes the fool wise, right? Because we want wise people, but it's swift justice. Uh, Swift justice, swift stripes on the back uh, of the wicked makes the fool wise. You know that's that's the kind of that's the kind of world we live in um, because it's not a you know we're not billiard balls obeying the laws of physics, and we're also not social billiard balls obeying the laws of the land, the laws of the Supreme Court, or you know laws of the. What, who's the highest power right now? The, I mean, right now we get a bunch of presidential, uh, we get executive orders. Yeah, I still joke. think the Supreme Court is the highest power right now. Yeah, I think so. But I think it's going to shift because I think after Roe v. Wade, they're like, wait a second, they're only all their authority came underneath them. Finally, everybody's like, wait a second, they don't make laws. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who makes laws really in this funny. nation? <laughs> all, all, all of a sudden. Congressmen are like, hey, this, these, these judges think they're out here making laws. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, we've all been saying that so, for Jason, a long time now. H- help me with something though. So we, 
we're shaped by so that's that's true so what is a, the bible talks about um the beatings are for the backs of fools proverbs right uh, yeah um so it's to make the person less foolish not to do this don't do that right and then people learn wisdom from watching somebody who acts foolish um so that's that's the that's the law showing people not to do something. So that's the training aspect of the law is the justice of it, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is why, like, you get younger siblings that get a lot fewer spankings because they yep. watch their older siblings being dumb. They're like, not doing that. My my daughter, Alex, <laughs> complains about this. She's like, how come the younger ones don't get more spankings? Because they weren't as bad as you. Like, <laughs> right, they, exactly. they learn from watching you not to do that <laughs> stupid stuff. <laughs> they, they learned watching you get spankings, and they're like, not worth it. <laughs> so then when, when we, when we see, so then help me. So when, we, uh, cause right now the, just this past week in the 4th of July, there has been a lot of shootings. Um, it's, it's, it seems there is a climb in public catastrophes, right? There's a climb in it. Yeah. And I don't think it's an accident. I don't think you can do what you did and shut people up for two years who are already on the brink of a sinful, you know, explosion. Yeah. And then when it so, when, social psychic break. Yeah, absolutely. And then all of a sudden put them back out in society and it's like, go act normal. And there, that's just good luck, but yeah. you're not going to get normal right. for a long time. Well, and you know, go hang out in your room all by yourself with a computer with an unlimited amount of, porn and occultic you know i mean i think there's a demonic aspect to a lot of what's going on in the country as well that uh, that was that was there yeah um but it was not the focus the way that it has become or it has it's it's gained its power um and but but then you know there's not going to be justice right like we're not going to get um a public hanging or uh, public execution, you know, no, uh, no, right. Which is, which I think is, I mean, that's what the death penalty is for. It's for situations like this, right? This is where, why you have first and third degree murder and, um, you know, multiple first degree murders mm. is a death penalty situation. Um, you know, you've got eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is a limiting, statement you know it's a limiting statement on what what you can recover from somebody uh, the, um and, but that's why the death pen that's but the death penalty fits into that when you take multiple lives in first degree murder because that first second third degree murder is a biblical category that's something that that um the scriptures teach there's first degree murder where you lie in wait to, yeah. to murder someone premeditated murder um you have murder that is uh that is you you did mean to kill the person but you didn't lie in wait it was a you know crime of crime of the moment it's, is and then you've got manslaughter an accidental murder yeah. your fault um because you didn't take care to avoid uh to purposely avoid putting other people in danger yeah, careless but you weren't trying to you weren't trying to kill anyone right um you know there's different the, those are the categories of Deuteronomy, um, and and the, the the entire world has benefited immensely from the Book of Deuteronomy because of the limitations uh, that 
that are put onto justice. But now we've sort of swung the other direction. So now we look at somebody and we say, well, he's got mental problems. So yeah, he killed people, but he should probably, you know, go to a hospital for a little bit. We need to adjust his medication and then we can re-release him into the population. And you think, and you're just going to get more and more of that. Right. Um, if people, especially if people think they're going to be able to get off. You know, you just um, made me think of something. You just, you know, we have no suppression of of sin in, the, in society whatsoever. So the law is working the wrong way in the way that we're using it right now. We're right. trying to use it on the front end and trying to get something to work in a sense like gravity. And it and that's not how the law is designed to work. It doesn't work that way. It's, um, it, yeah. But, but but pulse does does have an effect, right? It's yeah. going to inflame sin if you try to use right, it. Right, yeah. So yeah. so it does have an effect and it inflames sins when you use it, try to yeah, that's a good point. But the back end, which is a public um so for death penalty, you would see the victims of that person, um, you would see them in that in that society begin they would toss the first stone. They would be the first person to attribute to get justice for themselves back from that person. Um, but publicly it was a proclamation that you don't want to be the guy down there getting stoned. Like that's not <laughs> like, so don't go, go, don't go, go around killing people. And if you were careless in such a way that it took somebody's life more than once, or your animals were careless in a, in a way, then you also faced a certain sort of death penalty because you're not thinking highly enough of life. And those right. were all yeah. public. Those weren't private. Those were all public situations, institutions in society. There is nothing in the public at all. Like, for instance, I just saw R. Kelly get 30 years for a supposed sex trafficking and stuff like that. I'm like, the stuff that the government's been doing has been far worse than what R. Kelly's done. Nevertheless. Um, yeah. But R. Kelly, you know, death penalty, or not death penalty, R. Kelly gets 30 years in prison. I'm like, Where's a there's no justice in that. There's no justice right. in R. Kelly going to jail for thirty years. There's there's no returning to the victims. Right. What the victims what was, exactly. what was taken. Exactly. Yeah. There should be some sort of restoration uh, 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 given or taken place to the victims. And then whatever after that is done, so is R. Kelly. Right? I I, I don't know the details of the case, but I mean it, it depends. The, there's, 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 some, there's a reason there's there's death penalty for kidnapping. There's death yeah, penalty. Yeah, that's true for, too. That's true too. Um, no, that's right. Yeah, different. Yeah, he might he might have actually he might might be might need to get the death penalty depending on some of the stuff he did. Um, but there's a, but it, but thirty years. There's no public. There's nothing that happens publicly to say yeah, don't do that. Instead, what ends up happening right. is your you have to pay for whatever it is that he the prison that he goes to. <laughs> Yeah. You know, the food that he gets, whatever that is, you're required now to, to pay for that. So there, he yeah. might as you know, he might as well be out just with in his own place, living in his own building with just police officers around. But you have to pay for that, too. There's just there's right. n- there's nothing in society to suppress the wickedness of man that they see like, oh, yeah, don't don't be wicked, which is. It, it makes sense I, now while we're getting certain things happen in society more because there isn't anything that's suppressing it. I think though, the thing that is suppressing it is cancel culture. 
<laughs> I mean, I think that's, I think you, you have to have something, right? If it's not going to be the legal system, it's going to end up being the social, the social fabric. And right now that's cancel culture, right? That's what, so the, it, as messed up as the definitions of righteous and unrighteous are, and, um, and there, it is the closest thing you've got to the public suppression of unrighteousness. And this is the problem, but part of the problem with it is there is no, um, there is no trial. There's no jury of your peers. There's it's a mob rule. None of that. It is. It's, it's, it's the rule of the God Demos who is incredibly violent, but right. He, but he demands sacrifice. He'll get him. But then uh, that kind of that kind of justice system that's running rampant in the world is only going to make the person become more like what it is they did. So if cancel culture, there's no restorativeness to that person. So let's say that somebody stole something or did something that somebody didn't like um, or said something. Cancel culture doesn't give a chance for restitution. And so that person leaves. Without actually being transformed or any sort of real justice happening. And so now they just turn into twice the son of hell as they were before. Right. Cause now yeah, they, they really ha- don't they, have no place in society. He might as well lean all the way in. Yeah. They have to go out and live amongst the tombs. I mean, that's what you, I, I, I think that's actually why there was a guy, two guys actually living out amongst the tombs. The ones that Jesus heals I think it's. I think it was some sort of primitive cancel culture. Um, everybody else is able to continue existing because that guy out there is the one where we send all the demons, you know, or he's he's the one that holds all the demons out of the city with some sort of. I mean, it, it's it's such a weird story. There's got to be more to it, you know. Because you think, how did he end up there? How did he? How did because when he gets healed, sends him back into the city, and um, they ask Jesus to go away because they say, hey, this is, we need him there. <laughs> right? Like, they don't want who, him healed. They don't want him forgiven. They don't want, right? Which is exactly what happens, you know, when somebody gets canceled, somebody gets, uh, you know, thrown out of the society, thrown out of the community. And then Jesus comes along and rescues them. Mm. And they say, you know what? I found forgiveness. People say, no, you, you can't. There is no forgiveness. And it, this is not, they don't even believe in objective guilt, right? They just don't want people not feeling guilty because you have to, you have to self flagellate, self accuse when, um, According to the the way, I mean, it is it's really hard once you study just a little ancient um, ancient religion and ancient societal structure. Read you know, read something like Sophocles, and then you see cancel culture. It looks like a religious ritual. It looks like the the tearing apart of the victim who has to self accuse before you tear him apart. Um, for the for the society to be restored, right? Um, I mean, that's what you get in in uh, in Sophocles and in Aeschylus, and I mean, even in the Book of Job, you've got an attempt at it. They're trying to get Job to admit his own sin, 
right? Um, the whole time you've got to just admit your own sin. Uh, and, and they're, they're trying to, uh, restore something in the, in the society by scapegoating mm -hmm. this person. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but the self accusation is a really important part of the scapegoating process. Um, the, the, because if you've got an actual goat and you can lean your hands on it and then the goat agrees, you know, the goat can't disagree with the with the fact that it's now taken your sins. Right. Um, <laughs> whereas the, um, if you've got somebody who gets accused of something, if they don't, if they won't apologize, I mean, if they do apologize, then everyone says, good, now and tear them piece to piece. And we and we're justified, and the, and the peace is restored by their by their destruction, right? That their head rolls, and everybody feels better. The volcano now won't explode because we've thrown this person who has admitted that they should be killed um, into it. So, it's it it looks like I mean I think the cancel culture just looks like a, an ancient religious ritual to me. It's well, yeah, of course. Because they got to replace it with something. Man, they're religious, so they have to right. put something yeah. in place. That's you. You need a sacrifice. You need somebody that takes your sin away, or the society becomes, or the society tears itself to pieces. Uh, um, and so, either either a person is torn asunder, torn to pieces, um, on behalf of the society, or the society falls apart because sin is is too destructive. It's, it's a force that um, it, it's such a destructive force. So, you know, it's, and this is, I was listening to, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I just, and, and that's, you see that with cancel culture. You, you see that with the way politics work right now. I mean, everybody's looking for a scapegoat to, so that their little community can continue to be a community. This is why, um, so you have a lot of Christians who are uh, very heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. You ever heard that term before where, yeah, and yeah. so they, they really are focusing on um, this individual sanctification along with whoever else is in their church. And that's about it. They have no, uh, care really for this world, for politics, anything like that. Um, and, or just society period. They're just, they find their two things, uh, abortion. Cause it's murder. That's bad. Slavery shouldn't do that. They find the big things and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not opposed. We're opposed to that stuff, but then they don't have any sort of, um, worldview on how, uh, society should run. But it, one of the things that I was thinking about this weekend and that we've forgotten as Christians is the fact that all societies, every society, regardless of where they are, are all trying to deal with sin. So government, yeah. um, local government, no matter what it is, all of them are trying to deal with the problem of sin in some way. And Christians know how to deal with the problem of sin but then they don't engage in any of these other spheres because <laughs> this world and the world that they're looking to is a, there's two separate things, completely separate. Um, so that they don't have any sort of heart application or theology to apply to this world. 
that it seems like all the Bible is good for is sanctification for them. And that's it. Right. I'm just getting yeah. sanctified. I'm just getting holy. But they live in a society where all around them is trying to set up structures. We were just talking about laws, something to deal with the fall. You know, so they're everything that we see in society, everything that um, like even the fireworks. The reason if you looked at it from the best perspective that the, you can, the reason that they don't want people popping fireworks is because they're trying to keep people from hurting each other. They're trying to keep the danger yeah. away so that no one gets killed. No one loses a hand. Right. No one. So because they know that men are sinful and in their sinfulness, they'll do stupid and dumb things. <laughs> and so they're trying their whole goal is to try and work to limit sin in society. That is an inescapable concept. And Christians have the ability to really operate with a sin quencher and then they won't bring that to society to give it to. Like they won't operate in society outside of a particular sect. Well, that role's not for me. Well, it should be. You should be engaged in it somehow because you're the only person who knows. You know where the real scapegoat is. You know where how sin really gets forgiven. And I was just thinking about that this weekend. It's like, you know, we um we act as if and I think it was our last conversation when you we were talking about guilt, because even in my head, guilt was a supernatural or spiritual thing. Right? Right. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't something that was no no no, this is guilty. Guilty. <laughs> like, oh, it like in a, a legal sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, if that's the case, then it changes. It, it, it that started morph with how I, some of my cosmological foundations. But and so that's what got me down the road of thinking. It's like, well, then if that's the case, then everything in society is dealing with that problem, right? The the government is the police officers are there because they're trying to deal with the problem of sin that happened in the garden. Our legislators are there because everything that they do are trying to deal with sin. It's not like they're just randomly there trying to create laws. No, no, no. They're trying to deal with the fall. Right. And, but here, here's what I think happens though for a lot of people um, is because we don't have a, concept of jurisdictions we don't have we we don't have people that know what to actually do when they're supposed to take responsibility when they're supposed to seek the good of their city take responsibility um for their city take you know take res- the um the, we we uh, christians do the same thing that the rest of the world does. And we flatten all of the jurisdictions into one. And so we think we, when we say we need to um, be engaged uh, in the, the, in for the good of society, we think that means it's important who we vote for, for president. <laughs> Did, does that make sense? Yeah, so is this kind of like with offices too? Like when you were talking about with offices, with with offices as well. So um, jurisdictions, the 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 fundamental jurisdictions um, uh, are everything froze up on my screen. Are we still good? Yeah, we're still good. Yeah. 
Okay. The fundamental jurisdictions are civic government, ecclesiastical government, family government, and yeah. self-government. Right. Right. And when when we say, hey, we've got to we've got to do something, everybody thinks that means civic realm and it means highest powers in the land. Yeah. Machiavelli. You have people yeah. Yes, Machiavelli. And we've got to get the highest power in the land um uh forming forming culture and society into the right thing because that's where it happens. Right? It happens from the wherever the highest power is gathered, then they have the power to form reality. So we think in those Machiavellian terms, not in terms of the 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 way God actually created the world, which is that you've actually got a series of jurisdictions. Um, and then those jurisdictions are even then divided further. Yeah. So they're, you know, in a classical jurisdiction, but there's not, um, um, a, there have to be a single, uh, a single authority that, ha- that holds that full worldwide ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Um, that that doesn't have to happen um because we're not machiavellians you know um i was thinking the other day about uh you know what what actually is the uh cosmological precursor to machiavelli um and i was i, I think it's the papal revolution of of uh the uh 13th century you had the the Holy Roman Emperor was said to, uh, he was established in the seat of Paul and the, the sea of Paul or the seat of Paul. The, um, and the, the Bishop of Rome was said to be established in the sea or the, you know, the, the seat of Peter. He was the, the, the descendant of Peter. And the reason was because God actually established multiple authorities that were there to keep one another in balance keep one another in check. So even at the highest authority in the church at the time, because this was, um, this was, you know, you had basically a fight for the highest authority, uh, in the highest ecclesiastical authority going on at the time. And, but the, the Pope, um, he, he, so in 800, the Pope put the crown on Charlemagne and it sort of metaphorically began shifting, even civil powers into the ecclesiastical hands. Then 400 years or so before you had a, a actual Pope who viewed himself as the supreme head of the world, um, who also then went after the authority of the emperor. And so he, the, the Pope began signing all of his papal bulls, his, his official communications, um, from the sea of Peter and Paul. Right? Mm. So it, and it was, a, it was a major revolution of authority. Um, but the, the emperor at the time, the, the, uh, the Holy Roman emperor at the time, um, he was humble, was a humble guy who said, okay, well, I don't want to grasp after authority. And he is the representative of Christ on earth. And he didn't, defend his authority and it wasn't until the reformation that you had the re-separation of powers yeah uh, so god you know, uh the 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 
civic and ecclesiastical authorities were re-separated. And that was one of the needs in, of the Reformation was the, the, the realization that, um, that God didn't establish authorities that, um, that flowed down a mountain like a creek or like a, like a river where you had the highest authority at the top and then every right. authority was in line like that, but that you actually had overlapping jurisdictions. So the re, so the reestablishment of overlapping jurisdictions, um, uh, in the Reformation was actually, um, a return to something that you had earlier, uh, but it was over against that papal revolution. But Machiavelli took that 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 understanding of authority and secularized it, and then the the Enlightenment runs with it and kind of reaches its fever pitch in World War One, from like World War One to the Vietnam War. That's the that's the Enlightenment peak, um, modernism's peak. So, uh. But what we need to do is reestablish an understanding of jurisdictions that so we don't say, hey, you need to get involved in the shaping of culture. And that means, let me tell you how to vote. You know, because that's what most people actually mean by it. Can I tell you why I think they mean that, though? I think that. Yeah. Everyone looks. (sighs) No one wants to do the hard work. And. No one, everything, everybody wants it microwavable, right? Right, yes. Like, that's the the thing. When you look at the current power structures, it seems like you can get what you know would come over time with your family, with that sphere, what would come over time and faithfulness to your church. You, You think that, oh, well, shoot, if I can just go right here to the federal government, it's not like I can get that much faster. Like that's the right. microwave, right? <laughs> if I could, if we could just get that, then the microwave will happen and we're, boom, we're there. But when you talk yeah. about going into other jurisdictions, it seems like the time frame for success is multiplied by three. Yeah, thirty maybe, but yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking but I three think lifetimes. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the same. It's the same though. It's because we think we have. Um, our fundamental metaphors about what kind of place we live in are mechanical, right? They're physics metaphors um, and, and legal, right? So we have this machine that runs and the levers that build and construct and run the machine are laws, right? Yeah. So that's our, that's our, that's our metaphor. Whereas the, um, the scriptural understanding organic uh is organic metaphors mm. uh and then uh and then um music right Th- those are kind of our the the uh scriptural you know, more more scriptural metaphors um and so the hierarchies are not mechanical they're organic right this is, so you know um we, you look at the when my daughter graduated recently, they gave her a plant. It was a little little oak tree, um, and uh, I went out to water it yesterday. And one of the leaves has a disease, and you think, oh, okay, you got to pluck it. But who knows if the disease spread yet? Right, right. 
we'll find out eventually it might that but that one disease leaf may end up actually killing the whole tree um but you just don't know yet you pluck the tree you do what you can you you water it you fertilize you do what you can but but there's something um fundamentally mysterious about the cause and effect in organic um in an organic setting that you don't have in a setting of uh, you know on a pool billiard balls in a machine um where you you go in and you find the piece that's broken you take it out if you've got a clock you take you find the gear that has a missing tooth you either replace the gear or replace the tooth you put it back in and then it works again. Yeah, um, we, so mankind and our relationship to creation is an organic relationship. So you say, well, what are my, what, what are my jurisdictions? So, so I'm in a church. So I, and so I'm a church member, um, maybe a church elder or a church deacon or a pastor, right? So I've got a jurisdiction there. I have a family, I've got a jurisdiction there. You know, I'm a son, maybe I'm a daughter. I'm a father, a mother. Um, you know, I, my, uh, I'm not really a huge animal person, but we've gotten my kids animals at different times so that they have a little jurisdiction, you know, right. to, to practice on, you know, you've, That's you've got, good, you're trying, yeah. you're trying to, you're, you're raising up people up into their jurisdictions and then you've got a neighborhood You've got a house, uh, you've got a yard, um, you, uh, then you've got work, uh, you've got your, your place of employment, you, um, or you know, the business you own, whatever it is, you've got a, you've got all these overlapping jurisdictions. And then we also vote. Sometimes we're on juries. Uh, we, we, but we, and we vote at city, county, state, levels uh and then so federal the the smaller the jurisdiction and the closer you are to the head of it the more influence you have right so um and the places where god has given you the ability to really form something important and lasting right the higher up the further you are from the top of the jurisdiction, uh, the less influence you have there. And so it's, I can see why people that think the, the place that culture is formed is from the, the seat of the president, uh, from the, from the oval office get really discouraged, especially when you vote when something, you know, cause you, cause you have one vote out of, right. However many millions there are that are real and, you know, the ballot stuffing and, you know, whatever you've got all of this. People just say ah, this place is going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing I can do about it. Um, but, you, but in reality, the most effective thing you can do is be a good parent, be a good neighbor, be a good church member, um, because those are jurisdictions as well, I mean, the the oh, they just don't seem powerful, Jason. Just <laughs> telling you, man, 
I just want to, you know, I just got to keep it real. Okay. I just, I just want to make people do what I want them to do. Let's just, let's just, <laughs> exactly. let's just be honest. Right. Let's, just, let's just, everybody yeah, keep we, it up. all 100 right now. We want people to do what the heck we tell them to do. <laughs> Stop killing folks. You know, like, it's, that's what we want, to- man. Totally. I mean, I, and that's what's so hard is, I mean, we were looking at, we were talking about that second Corinthians 10 passage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the, how the, how hard it is to, um, to think about obedience the way Paul does, right? Paul, he, that what's his goal to bring into captivity, every thought towards the obedience of Christ right so that there's that the he wants people to obey Jesus right he wants people to live to truly live abundant lives which is what the describes yeah so he wants people to to love Jesus and obey him um backs but if you back through the passage he does it he says be, by dealing with the our imagination and our idolatry, right? That the place where our imaginations are not in line with the way God actually made the world and Jesus and how Jesus rules it, and the things that we put in place of mm. Jesus as the one who rules this world, right? So he deals, he, he says, that's what I spent my life doing, right? Because there were people in Corinth that had come in with legalistic plans that had come in with particular, with particular, uh, you know, with, with a, um, a legalistic system that they, if you just employ this externally, then, then you will become obedient people. Right. But he, but, but Paul says, I spent, I spent my life on you, right? I spent my life for you and you have, and you've got to remember what it, what it was that I dealt with with in order to bring you to obedience the formation of your imagination into the lordship of Christ uh and the idolatries where you trusted in something other than Jesus for your identity for your provision for your protection right those when we when we dealt with those idols and you repented of that idolatry and when you when your imagination was formed um he says then um your your every thought was captive towards the obedience of Christ right obedience suddenly was the thing that started to make sense right obedience now was the thing that you wanted to do right you wanted to follow Jesus you wanted to do what he said and it, it's what made sense to you because your imagination was formed in a particular way your trust your faith was not way being wasted on idols right and he, and then you know we back further in um he's, that's when he says we walk in the flesh but we do not war after the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not bodily they're not carnal they're not um they they're mighty through god to the pulling down of strongholds right so he says we did we didn't deal in a fleshy way fleshly way with you where mm. we thought we could just get you get you to you know go through a particular system or you know do something and then you would 
suddenly become. We didn't put laws holy. on you to make you, right? <laughs> right. We didn't, it wasn't. A, it wasn't rulishness. It wasn't a bunch of rules that turned you into that. He said, "What we dealt all the way with, uh, with with your spirit, with your imagination, with your idolatry, um, and uh, he, he said because we didn't walk according to the flesh, right? We didn't. We didn't solve a problem with a new set of rules. We aimed at the formation of your desires, which flow out of your imagination, and they flow out of your." Uh, your fundamental faith, your faith commitments, right? The things you trust, um, and your your desires flow from what you what you believe you can trust, and your imagination, right? So I say all the time to people: failure, failures of faith begin as failures of the imagination, because of Paul here saying that exact same thing, and and people are always like, "Man, that's really that's really quaint," you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's cute or you know that's uh, um but so it, it we don't we don't realize how how fundamental um our our how how our fundamental commitments imaginatively and in terms of our faith and trust affect our desires um so is so, this a, is this an issue of ignorance or is this an issue of faithlessness or is it both? Uh, I, well, it, it's both. Sometimes, sometimes one, sometimes the other, um, and a, you know, a combination. We're always way more complicated. <laughs> but I think there was faithlessness um, in previous generations that was that was passed down, um, and then there was. Uh, but then also, there's there is just an, uh, a fundamental ignorance, you know. Um, I mean, think about, um, so our, our, in our church, we're going through the book of Micah and the sermon this last week was, was really good, but it was on, it was where Micah says, let's look at the mountains. Let's let them be the jury, right? The mountains will be the jury between us and God. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, look out because of your sin, they are going to fall on you. Right. And, and, it is a it is a metaphor. It's poetic metaphor, but it's also he's saying reality functions a certain way, right? You can't, you don't actually have the power to change reality. So the the mountains uh, can adjudicate because they simply just by existing, right? If you if you say I'm going to uh, I'm going to act against nature against natures yeah, of things, the yeah. nature of things against reality, um, the, uh, your, your sin will begin its punishment r- right away because you actually can't act against reality. Right. So, um, if you want to, if, if you say, I'm going to eat all the seed, you're not going to have a harvest next season. Mm. Right? Reality works a particular way. Mm. Um, and, and in Micah's day, they were, their idolatry through that through idolatry they were it was the equivalent of of wasting their seed and so they were going to be going into um going into exile well it's the i mean we 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 were in oh, we went to see really good, i would see the new man. elvis with my teenagers and there was this just gay movie uh, uh, in the beginning and and uh <laughs> this guy goes 
makes some comment like, do you guys remember straight people? Yeah, they had their day, but they're done. And my, my 16 year old son, as soon as it got quiet, he was like, no straight people means no more people. <laughs> really loud in the theater. It was so funny. <laughs> and there was this really awkward laughter. Everybody. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, it, what's so funny is it's totally, I mean, it, everybody knows it's true, right? No straight people means no children. Like there's no next generation. So you can fight against reality and pretend, but the mountains, the mountains are, are that what they are, they're going to judge. Um, you know, that. that's, it's funny you bring that up. Um, there is a part of, I think the reality that the other side is hoping on is, yeah, we know that no straight people means no more people, but we know that you're going to just keep producing and giving us whatever it is that right? there's a, there's a, they are counting on a certain truth about reality. <laughs> Right. themselves in order to exist you know um and it's kind of the same way I, we were talking about this a little bit um but you saw the daily wire came out with jordan peterson were like i thought that was a massive great move right that was a great move for them to sign jordan peterson up on their platform now so he's officially with the daily wire plus um just I mean, it's not like they needed any more intellectual power over there, but boy, they're just a massive intellectual powerhouse over there with Jordan Peterson. Yeah. So they did that. And within the week, they had show that they had uh, Dave Rubin did an interview with Jordan Peterson talking about gay parenting and the pitfalls yeah. of gay parenting. And I'm like, you got the a guy who is kind of like the king of the message of masculinity 12 rules of living of life i mean you you couldn't put with him a, a more degrading um uh narrative with his message than dave rubin and gay parenting right was, it's like you know you couldn't be more upside down <laughs> it was and and more tone deaf to who your audience is. I thought that was really interesting too. Well, that's but, that's the part that that I was rocked by was like, are they tone deaf, or are they saying something else? You know. And so either because I would have thought with all of the Disney gay queer stuff that has been rampant inside of uh the conservative movement like yeah we're not going that way no nope, we're not queering it up nope it's like queer has become synonymous with cr critical race theory right those two things like they're queer theory critical race theory they've merged together and and all the christian conservatives are like no way we're not going down that road and here they go talking about gay parenting i'm like wait that's the uh, are you getting your walking orders from disney have they given your talking points what is going on here and go ahead. I, I think I think their cosmology gave them their talking points. They just share the cosmology. Yeah, uh, but even they, it, for Mark, but even a marketing crew has to be like, "Hey guys, this ain't a good. This is not a good idea at all, right?" 
even the marketing production point said that well disney took a long time before they decided to release stuff like that i don't actually i don't even think disney has released anything that on the nose <laughs> I I, think, they released uh the a short but yeah i mean nothing but, nothing but, that on the nose but you get like it's like taking you know could you imagine them with disney taking captain america and making him gay that's the that's the same thing. That's basically what they did, right? They took Jordan Peterson and had a conversation with Dave Rubin and said, "What gay parenting and Christians take it, right?" I, I, right. And so, I mean, even Disney kind of warms you up a little bit. Hey, we're gonna put a gay kiss in, <laughs> like you know, they they kind of yeah. have you know, snuck it in. I mean, the last Marvel, um, what was it? The uh, multi-universe doctor strange last film yeah and that one they it i mean the girl was wearing a flag i was like oh man it's coming but then her and her parents you know were both lesbians in another multi-universe somewhere over there you know okay but it's still yeah, I like seen that one yet yeah it they they threw it in it was they're a first, slipping it in though. they're slipping it but dude daily wire didn't slip it in like that was just flagrant my my whole point is I, I'm thinking that they're saying forget you Christians. Like you aren't you don't you don't matter anymore. In one sense, you know, you're irrelevant. You're not an audience that we need to play to. Um we we are going towards a conservative group of people and this is our direction, our trajectory, and if you want to come with us, great. But this is where we're going. And yeah. go ahead. I and I th I think they don't actually know what it is they're trying to accomplish. I mean, like because it's like, well, what what are you actually trying to to conserve? be big? Like, are, they're trying to be big. They right. want to be powerful. Yeah, I think they've got that same Machiavellian assumption. Right. Look, once we get powerful enough, we can shape it the way we want it. This is the best way to power. Then you, and you start to say, well, well then what are, what are we trying to shape it to? I mean, you're you're going right. you're not going to be any different, right? You're not you're not offering a a, a real alternative. Um I mean, maybe we get to keep our guns. That is that the alternative? No, because they the, like red that's flag the whole laws. Alternative, no. If that's the whole alternative, I'm. I mean, that's. Well, you that's won't not need a, them. That's, that's not enough. I mean, you'll already be in prison. Like the way the world will work, you. I mean, this is. <laughs> uh, I would. Exp yeah, you. Yeah. Anyway, I don't even talk about COVID again and guns. That those two things, I would have thought people would been like, "Yeah, we ain't doing that because we got guns." Period. But that didn't help anybody. <laughs> that didn't no. really. It didn't really matter. Um, but there is a reality. That if they're going to bite off the whole homosexual movement in some some it's almost like the Civil Rights Act and Civil Rights Movement, Civil Rights Movement did the same thing where you got Martin Luther King Jr.'s two homosexual speech writers. Right. And they had a moral high ground, but they compromised with that. And so then they had to pay for that when it came time and they're paying for it right now. And like, hey, you, they, the homosexual movement is cashing in their chips with the black culture. Like, okay, man, hey, we were with y'all, we supported you guys. You guys owe us now. 
And so you have um, now they want to amend the Civil Rights Act with homosexuality and all that stuff, you know, it mixed into it. So but there is a part of reality that. You know, the Daily Wire. If Christians would say, yeah, we are not going to embrace that, even though it seems legit, legitimately powerful, the Daily Wire is growing. I mean, I think they have close to 600,000 club members now. Um, they're doing movies. They have hundreds of millions of dollars uh, set aside for films and for movies, and they're going to be doing stuff. And they're going to be an alternative to what we see. They're going to do kids' films, too. I mean, I'm just thinking mm-hmm. to myself, is Dave Rubin going to be a part of the, the kids? You know what I mean? Like, we just oh, yeah. left this. We're going to do. Right? Hey, that's, yeah. Um, this So, all right. I think we got to back up just a little bit. Okay. Yeah. And I, yeah. That, because, because I think, I think that the civil rights movement is a good example. Um, but I think we don't tell the, the true story of the civil rights movement very well. Yeah. And I think that's why we're still getting, um, you know, they're, they're still, you know, going, going over the top on us in the arm wrestle. Because we don't actually tell that story properly. Sylvester because Stallone movies were... for two hundred, Bob. Nobody even caught what was that. that. Sylvester Stallone uh, films for two hundred. Oh yeah, Bob. most people don't even know over was, the top. They like that hey. was my that was my Stallone <laughs> reference for the day. Hey, if you knew that <laughs> reference, like somebody deserves something free. Yeah, <laughs> I know for sure. Okay, I'll, I'll send you a free copy of my book In Pursuit of Kindness. <laughs> um, if you if you knew that reference. Um, <laughs> Next, I'll be referencing Gleaming the Cube. That'll be. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we have the because the civil rights movement. Um, so Nietzsche, he was a classicist. We talked about him some before, but he he had a a descriptive theory of culture that that there were two competing spirits in the culture, but he, he didn't believe that they were metaphysically real spirits, but that he called them the Apollonian and the Dionysian spirit. Uh, and the Apollonian was the spirit of, uh, the spirit of self-control, the spirit of organization, uh, the spirit of, uh, of kind of this, the stoic acceptance of, uh, of, of things that held, um, that held things together by holding back um, desires, right? So the spirit of the suppression of desires that that made society possible, but that by su- suppressing those desires, that there was a force that was building behind the dam, but the Apollonian dam that was the Dionysian um, desire. Uh, the 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 Dionysian release of desires. So Dionysus was the god of, he was the the god of wine. The god uh, he was worshipped with orgiastic um, lesbianism. Honestly, as I don't, that was wow. murderous. I, it's it's a hard. It's we don't realize <laughs> how we don't realize how good we've got it yet. Yeah. So um, and that uh, that. The longer you kept the um, 
the the longer you kept the Apollonian um, pressure on, uh, with, then the more the the more buildup of the Dionysian spirit that you got. And then it needed to be released every once in a while. Mm. And when it was, and, um, and he just said that is, uh, that, that, um, when you've got a, so that law exists as a coercive power to keep the Apollonian spirit, um, in place, but that, that because of that, there was this pressure that builds up in a Dionysian release. And he shows, through history, through the ancient world, how that works, and he shows um, that that that's something that that he expects to continue happening. Mm. Um, and uh, it, Freud takes that societal understanding and he individualizes it into his theory of the id and the superego creating the ego together. And it's it's it was a really influential understanding, but it's also something that without Christ is inevitable. Um, and that is actually his point. He he wants to remove the, even the memory of Jesus because he thinks Jesus weakens society um, because it turns us into servants of one another. He called it a slave religion. You know, it turns us into servants of one another when we actually need to uh, be. We need people uh, desiring and searching for power and willing to you know, step on one another and destroy one another, kill one another, because that's how you get to the best thing, right? That, that evolutionary mentality that survival of the fittest produces the best thing. That's way better. <laughs> yeah. Right, way, and, and, and he was, I mean, he was really straightforward and honest that he thought that was the, how you got, uh, that, that struggle was the way, um, w- which in German is Kampf, right? Ah. So you, Mein Kampf means my struggle, right? It's Hitler coming along saying, here's how I got to the top in that to become Nietzsche's, <laughs> Nietzsche's Superman, Nietzsche's Ubermensch. Um, that's what Mein Kampf is about, is the, how Hitler came through struggle to become the, the next phase of the evolution of mankind psychologically. So, um, or psychically, not really psychologically, but the, uh, so you have, um, you have that actually that is one of the things that's going on in the fifties and the early sixties, right? Is you actually have um, this Dionysian release that is an opposition to the Apollonian oppression uh, of the, of desires. So when there's no, when there's so, you know, Paul comes along and says, we actually transform our desires from wanting what's wrong to wanting right. right. And so then we become uh, people that, that obey the law, obey, you know, conform to reality, obey Christ, love, love our neighbor willingly. We don't suppress, we don't just suppress the bad desires. We transform our desires to, until we, uh, our desires are properly ordered um, and we want the right thing without Jesus. So you can do is suppress the desires and Nietzsche is absolutely right. That if that's what you're doing, that at times you get rele- releases in order to restore order. So you have that going on in the fifties and in the, it, it, 
in the 50s and the 60s, post-World War II, you have this Apollonian suppression kind of reaching its reaching a fever pitch. So you've got violence, you've got assassinations going on, you've got riots, you know, uh, riots, you've got all this all this stuff that's going on right at the time. Um that's that is just enlightenment forward motion of society. It's it's how that you expect it to go, it's how it's going. At the same time, you have a conflict between the enlightenment and the church. Right, so you have a, a con- um, that is the civil rights movement. So the church is finally rising up and saying, um, and taking its jurisdiction seriously. You, um, our neighbor in our neighborhoods, uh, you've got the dehumanization of people that is unacceptable. Right. So the civil rights movement is a is a movement of the church as the church rises up against the enlightenment because the enlightenment, um, the enlightenment actually taught that you that you that different um the different uh people with different colored skin are different sorts of humans that they should be treated differently that they should be kept separate um that that it's a law of biology that, that there was the laws of of biology that they should be kept separate there were people writing academic papers um on the the separation of the races and um uh, the uh, even Planned Parenthood started with a with sort of an academic journal um, where they with these academic papers on the the need for the weeding of the human race yeah. um, to keep it pure uh, because the that racial purity was um, an enlightenment it, it was an enlightenment ideal right and so you have this you have this it was white growing... boy summer before white boy summer <laughs> right yeah you've got this growing concern with racial purity uh in the enlightenment and the church finally wakes up and was like wait a second that's not right mm. right the racial purity that's a, is a is the is a, the wrong categorization love loving your neighbor um is not a is not a is not a racial you don't you don't racially divide uh, and then love people of one race and not the other we're all neighbors that the human race is the is the race uh, and and we love one another and our um, so we've got people not being treated like people and so the church rises up right in the same moment that you've got this apollonian dionysian conflict that's that has been coming and is about to to arrive the two conflicts end up getting conflated in our storytelling Mm. Right. So, and and that's the way that the Enlightenment has turned around and claimed the, the advancement that the Church made by combining their conflict, the in, inner Enlightenment conflict, with the Enlightenment of the Church with the Enlightenment of the conflict with the Church with the Enlightenment. Right. So, um, and so now when we tell the story, we actually don't separate out those two things. Right. So you so you end up. So like the people that were opposing so the, the the people that were opposing Elvis because he was singing black music um were enlightenment people they weren't um but they and they were also opposing the church um which was saying you've got to treat black people humanely like humans um, 
they were not opposing them for the same reasons. And that doesn't mean that, that what was going on with that Dionysian rise uh, of, of rock and roll um, was the same thing that was going on in the civil rights movement, right? That those were not the same thing. Now there was overlap partly because it was, there's gospel music, right? It's, it's, com- it's complex uh, because there's gospel music because Elvis was playing with black musicians and actually, j- but jazz had already started integrating long before this. Yeah. Um, and that didn't cause the same sort of societal uproar. What caused the societal uproar was the Dionysian rise of, of the teenager, right? That's mm. what was causing the societal uproar. When, um, when you had black and white jazz musicians play together, there were places that would say, no, you can't play here. Um, you know, uh, but the, the, um, what was the, the guy that, uh, played the clarinet, um, and he, he, he added Lionel Hampton to his court, his quartet and refused to play anywhere that wouldn't allow Lionel Hampton in. Um, oh, what, uh, man, why can I not think of that guy's name? He was a great musician, but he just said, it, it was like, what music, you don't, you don't, music doesn't have a color. You're either a great musician or you're not. Right. And I want to play with the best musicians there are. Lionel Hampton's the best. Um, because the guy was, I mean, the guy was brilliant, but they were both just brilliant musicians. And he, he looked at it and he, he said, this is not matching up with reality, right? Your division of black and white is not matching up with reality, right? Let the, you know, let, let's let the mountains decide. Let's let the mountains be the jury. Mm-hmm. Is this? Are you lining things up with the reality or not? No, this this man's my friend. He's a great musician, and it, um, and I know I, I know uh, reality, and so he insisted. Well, I can't think of his name. I got we have to. Um, Clifford Brown, uh, West Montgomery. No, no, Montgomery's that guy's a great guitar uh, player. Um, oops. But, uh, but, but that didn't cause the sort of Benny Goodman, um, Benny Goodman. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that didn't cause the sort of societal upheaval that rock and roll did. And it wasn't, it wasn't just because he was playing music that black people had written. It was because there was actually this teen, this whole teen revolt against the Apollonian spirit that was very Dionysian. And it it came and it went, right? And people want to say that led to the sexual revolution, and and that there were there were parts of the uh, there were things that um, there were like many sexual revolutions going on, but it didn't lead to any sort of major sexual sexual revolution. There was an upheaval, and then it died back down because that's how the Enlightenment dealt with the fact that they were using coercive means to oppress people's desires. Every once in a while, there was a major release. There was violence. There was, uh, you know, uh, sexual promiscuity. There are all sorts of things. And then it died back down and it went back to normal. That coinciding with aspects of the coinciding historically with aspects of the civil rights movement is not the same thing as those two things being the same. Now, Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. was willing to use 
aspects of what was going on for his, for his purposes. Um, and, uh, and that's, and I think that's because his project was a mixed bag in terms of its goals. Yeah. Um, he- and it's, and it's, you know, it, uh, but, but there's no doubt that it was the church coming into conflict with the enlightenment uh, about the nature of our, of, of people um, that actually was the driving force of the civil rights movement as a whole. Martin Luther King Jr. was a great speaker and he became the public face um, in many ways of the movement. Um, but the movement itself was a church movement, right? It was, a, it was, it was pastors organizing people to say, Hey, humans should be treated like humans, which was something that the enlightenment had taught us, had taught against. Or at least redefine what humans were or who humans right. were. And so, and, and so how this ends up being used against conservatives is because it was the left, right? It was the left-wing enlightenment um, parties that pushed racism, that wanted racism, that wanted um, – you know, it, it wasn't a, a conservative movement, so to speak. I mean the, the rebirth of the conservative party hadn't even really happened yet. Um, and – uh, what what you ended up, uh, but what ends up happening is the way the story is retold is that somehow those folks from the KKK that were all Democrats, they that stood up and opposed Elvis are equated with the the churches, the Christians um, and the and the conservatives at the time because they didn't want Elvis singing black music because they were racists. Unlike us that support we leftists who supported the civil rights movement, um, and that somehow that is the story that ends up being told, right? It ends up being retold re- and, and conflated um, into a a story where the the people that were trying to preserve the Apollonian coercive force of the Enlightenment uh, that had been used to separate races, that somehow those were the conservatives. But those were the Enlightenment progressives. I mean, they were the, the. There's a reason that Time Magazine had Hitler as Man of the Year on the cover twice. Right? The, the <laughs> Enlightenment conservatives, I mean, the Enlightenment progressives were in, very racist, anti-Semitic, and they wanted a, an Aryan con, uh, coercive power at the top that held everything in line because there was no way to change desires directly you had to do it through um laws because of that cosmological understanding that that laws form society the way the laws of physics form form nature into its shape so okay that's man talking about taking it back so then (laughs) in that where what what is what is the Daily Wire in that though? What where do they fit in that? Conversation? So the, the, it's the it's it's the um, don't want to be on the wrong side of history argument, mm. right? The really the law has changed. The law has changed, right? The law it legalized it. All, everything that Ruben is doing, the Dave Ruben, yeah, it's all legal. So we can come in and say. It's wrong, right? The law 
the laws of the land shape reality. So but you, they don't, but they you're don't, opposing they, they don't believe reality. that, though. They can't believe that because they are completely opposed to Roe v. Wade. I would say they don't believe it in the attic. They believe it in the foundation. Huh. So they don't have any defense against it. So are you saying that they're the kind of folks that if, if it became illegal, homosexuality became illegal, they would be like, yeah, that's wrong? I think so. I mean, that's the, that's the fundamental legalism of so modernity. Then, so then they fundamental say- legalism of the Enlightenment. Man, Ben Ben Shapiro, he's an he's he's a, he's an Enlightenment guy. I mean, he'll he'll tell you that if you ask him. That's why really? that Russell Brand interview was so was so, I think, important. And it's unfortunate that Christians don't understand that Shapiro is an Enlightenment guy. <laughs> he's not a conservative. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I see that when he's it comes a, to gun stuff, I start realizing that he's he, he's faulty. Like he doesn't have a problem with red flag laws, and I, I start yeah. seeing other things break down where it's like, wait a second, that's not conservatism. Um, yeah, he's br- he's brilliant. Oh yeah, he, he is a, he is self consciously an Enlightenment Jew, right? Like a Mamamides Enlightenment rational rationalistic Jew. And there were there were a number of really prominent Jewish philosophers in the Enlightenment. So he's he's got he's within a particular tradition. It's only a couple hundred years old, um, late seventeen hundreds. But he's we, he's within a particular tradition of Judaism, um, philosophical Judaism. This is not really religious. I think he is himself more more religious, but philosophically he's Enlightenment Jew. And so in the um, in that he's he's more like he's he's more in line with somebody like Kant or Hegel than he is with um, with you know uh, and even then conservative. So he's he's a conservative progressive. <laughs> he's a slow progressive. He's a right wing progressive. But so many evangelicals fit right in there with him, though. Yeah, because right. we have the same assumptions. Because we, but we, we swallow them from revivalism, right? We have a, there's a theological progressive. Wait, wait, are you saying uh, that? There's theological enlightenment. Okay. Enlightenment of the American church through revivalism. So we have enlightenment hitting us in both ways. We have a secular form of enlightenment and then we have a revivalistic reformed slash a form of enlightenment coming from us in both sides. Work through that yeah. one. How yeah. does revivalism make us bring us into an end? So this is all cosmological, though, right? Like this is it's all cosmological. Yeah. Okay. So it's so it's the it's the basic so the basic assumptions of the Enlightenment is that there's a fundamental chaos, and um, that and the the chaos is the regenerative principle, um, and we order the chaos through power. Right. So that's mm. the that's the cosmological all is un- chaos. The, we order it through power. Yeah. We order it through power. So, um, you know the the it, so in so theologically the the anxious bench the revivalistic understanding that you've got to really like work somebody's emotions up really high, um, and then through that chaos. 
uh, a new order in their life is going to oh, come you about, right? Up. It's 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 the same thing. I mean, that's a it's the communist revolution of the soul. Um, that's my whole charismatic life growing up. I know. I mean, that's the but, and that's the and this is where it's so hard because you got good, you got good men and women that love the Lord who have been, um, who's who have been told this is actually the way the cosmos works, right? That they are coming in line with the nature of reality through these experiences. Um, it is not the way the world works, right? That is, that is a false assumption um, that actually the, the, the chaos only came in later, right? That, that you had uh-huh. a fundamentally ordered and unified universe that any sort of um, disunity you know, rolls up out of sin, not out of original intention. And when, when we oppose sin, we're actually returning to the ordered integrated. Okay. So couldn't somebody say organic, couldn't they argue is like, uh, the argument be, yeah, that was what you're talking about. Jason is before the fall. Now, after the fall, man, all bets off. It's a different world out there since the fall. And so before the fall, maybe the way you understood the cosmos is correct. But after the fall, it's a doggy dog world out there. Maybe before Jesus became the one who took all authority in heaven and on earth and restored it. But um but I mean now the curse is the curse is broken, it's undone, it's being rolled back and um I mean the the Jesus is Lord of Lord of all, right? He's Lord of heaven and he's Lord of earth. He's Lord of hell. He's Lord of things top to bottom. He's, he's, um, so you might say, well, Hey, the throne up there is empty because Adam, Adam and, uh, gave it up, right? Adam walked away from his authority, but the throne isn't empty anymore, right? The, the new Adam is actually seated on the throne. So, so that's our whole job is, now to restore uh, the fruitfulness or this is, this is how Colossians Colossians opens. Um, Right. Uh, So right. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, where we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Um, And then, Uh, Verse nine, for this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, right? That we, we'd have the knowledge and understanding that we, that we lost in Adam, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, right? So he says, well, what, what is it that Paul prays for the Colossians? What's all the things that Adam is told that it was, he was supposed to do be fruitful and multiply. Right. But he's like, but now it's on a whole grand cosmic scale. It's not just the garden of Eden anymore. It's not just the land surrounding the garden of Eden anymore. Now there's a cosmic restoration of the, of, of the knowledge of good and evil, a cosmic restoration of be fruitful and multiply. Right. Now we're, Paul says he's praying that we take that to a whole nother 
level beyond just the Garden of Eden, um, but that the the the, the church um, spreads throughout the whole world and gardenizes the whole thing. So, um, I mean, the, the church is the the garden of God. It's the family of God, and the pastors you know are are described as as um, leading the house of God well, gardening the gardening the garden of the Lord. You know, there's all this. This is a um, it's a it's a restoration project, and if you think in order to accomplish the restoration of the, a house that you got to knock the whole thing down every generation, um, you're not going to get very far in your restoration project. And maybe that's why we don't. But that's that. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's the Enlightenment understanding is that you got to knock everything down in order to be able you gotta to knock everything down. You need the constant revolution, right? That, that's why. That's why it, I mean, uh, Karl Marx teaches this explicitly, right? You, that, uh, that you need a constant revolution to move society forward to its new economic status, to its new, what, what you're after. You need a constant revolution. You can't ever let up. So if you've got a bit of revolution, that's, that's fine, but you have to actually move the revolution con- into a constant state. Right, that you need that constant revolution, um, and is, which we don't understand what's being done. We don't understand how often that's being done to us. That it doesn't. That, that so long as we live in this responsive state, as cons- conservatives and Christians respond, and we're upset about whatever the next thing, is, right? They're winning, right? They, they're getting their constant revolution. We just keep. We keep responding, playing yeah. into it, responding. So long as we respond, they keep they keep winning because they keep getting the constant revolution, keep, uh, being able to create the chaos to move thing to to move the move things forward. Yeah, that was revolution wise. That was what a friend recently just told me when I was bringing up to him, kind of like the failure of the Daily Wire stuff, and uh, I was like, man, you know, like this is messed up, and he he basically pointed out and was like yeah but what are you doing yeah like they're doing something they got a vision they're building something they're going a particular way and what are you doing like what what what, uh, dwight moody was the one who said uh, i like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it yeah (laughs) i was like he's talking he's talking about evangelism but but yeah yeah i mean i criticism and critics risk nothing um but they also build nothing right yeah that's and i think we have raised a generation that thinks criticism is is doing something yeah yeah that's actually you know if you look at our apologetics that's what our apologetics looks like um it looks like well because we can give the best critique and i think that's how conservatives exist and live uh, is if we can give the best critique of something, then we are, we've done something to the culture. We've accomplished, yeah, that we've accomplished something. Yes. Um, and but then, it's, it's, yeah. it's a little like saying, you know, um, Hey, I, I burned down my neighbor's fields growing really well <laughs> tomorrow. What? Uh, so mine must be growing really well. Like, right. Yeah. I, yeah. That's yeah. actually a good line. That's exactly. Because even, even Paul in Corinthians, his whole point is when, like, 
you know, we, we want to affect the, the broader culture. So we should obey Jesus in the church. But when the church is obeying Jesus, they'll then they'll come to us and they'll say, man, your garden grows really. How are you doing that? Right. But we're, we're out there wanting the death penalty when we won't even excommunicate. Right. We want, we want the death. We want the civic government ah, to, <laughs> to kill people and we won't. And, and, but the church won't excommunicate. I mean, I, I think we, um, and, and when a church does, when, when it, when a church enacts church discipline with, with justice, it is a blessing to the people in the church. I remember a, a young lady once coming into my office and saying, Hey, if I did such and such a thing, would you excommunicate me? And I said, I mean, we'd go through the process, but the elders would excommunicate you. Yeah. She's like, I thought so. She's like, okay, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't know what I should do though. That's the thing I want to do, but I know that that would be the response of the church. And so I need help not doing it and doing the right thing instead. But you, you need to help me figure out what it is. And I was like, Okay, the church discipline's working, right? We'd had a number of instances. Well, and that's another level discipline. of church discipline right there too, though, right? The church discipline oh, yeah, it was, is yeah. It was beautiful. Um it was a beautiful it was beautiful because she it it the the church discipline actually revealed to her her desires where they were crooked. Yeah. And and she was able to come in and say, "Hey, I that that the justice that I saw there has revealed to me some foolishness, but I, and I'm, at, I'm hopeless against it. Help, right? Which was beautiful. Because then you can surround, you can prop, you can help, you can be there and you can say, and you can also explain like, so this, so if you fall to the temptation, it's not the falling to the temptation that gets you excommunicated. It's, it's not repenting when you do fall to the temptation. So, if you follow the temptation, we are the people you flee to, right? Mm. Not from, right? Your your church, your people, your your that's who you flee to when you follow the temptation. Um, and she knew that because she had seen people confess who were under discipline and be embraced, right? Be, um, it, so so the the uh, growing up in that situation um, where uh, it was it, it was a benefit to her soul and to, you know, to her, to the generations that will come after that aren't going to have to deal with a mom that has baggage that those actions would have come from. Right. So you, yeah. and we, I mean, the, the process of our Christian faith is the unpacking the baggage that, that the generations packed before us. And then that we helped pack, you know, we unpack and confess the, and learn to deal with the fear and the guilt and the shame of it all. Um, throughout our lives, right? We continue to unpack and then we do some repacking and then we unpack again, right? That's the, that's, but, um, you know, having a, a church that, that you've seen grace enacted right in front of you, mm. right? This person committed this crime against the law of God. They confess it to Jesus. They confess it to, uh, to the people of uh, their, to their people and the people all rush towards them, mm -hmm. surround them, pray for them. Um, and then, you know, support them in the, as they deal with the consequences of it, but she'd seen all that. And so 
That's so she knew that's so huge. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful. It's a it's that's what. It, but we are, are asking the federal government all the way at the top to do that when we won't <laughs> in our churches, right? When we, and so if we do, we, we wouldn't actually have them. Said the, yeah. said the church that's not obeying Jesus. So, and you know, but, and just to take it a step further, like in our own homes, you know, as you were talking, mm-hmm. I was thinking like, do, one of the things that I try and work with my kids is like, don't hide sin. Yeah. I bring it to daddy. Like daddy wants you, to, wants to help you with this. Right. So yeah. if you have sin, bring it to me. I, we know where to put it at. We have a savior. He takes our sin, so we don't have to hide it. Because when you hide your sin, and I always want to teach him this, someone else will find it, and someone else will use it against you. And you will be enslaved to that person when Jesus wants to free you from it. So don't hide your sins. Like, bring it to me. We'll confess it if we have, and then we'll, and then God deals with it and we ask him to forgive us. You know? Well, and I I think, I mean, we, and we, we tend to think that, um, that when somebody confesses sin, that the way to keep them from sinning again next time is to hold it over them. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or lecture them or something, right? Yeah. Um, rather than doing what God does when we confess sin, we confess our sins and he says, I forgive you. And then he forgets it, right? He, for, I forgive you amongst other things is a promise to not treat you according to it, right? So for, uh, he forgets our sins. And that, forgiveness softens hearts. Yeah. And, um, but we forgive, we forgive and then we, and we say we forgive and then we don't forget. Um, or we say, now let me tell you how bad what you did was. Uh, now that you're forgiven, uh-huh. I should make sure you feel lots of shame. Right. Um, but shame, man, that creates a, rhino hide on the hearts of our kids mm. um that is not what we want we you you lift shame um you say you just point them to jesus he publicly he was publicly naked on the cross bearing all this shame right? so that you don't have to right so that shame's all gone um and that's such a it, it's counterintuitive um we think we need to apply shame and manipulative pressure and things um, when actually forgiveness is the thing that shifts the imagination of our kids yeah. towards confession in the future. Right. So if they know if I confess this, I'm going to have to go through it. Right. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to suck it up and deal with it. That shifts their imagination away from confession. Yeah. It shifts their imagination towards hiding. Um, and we we want, uh, you know, we had a, f- a funny conversation with one of our kids just recently, where they came to us with something that had happened, and we were talking through with it, and they said, "Man, it is so awkward. Sometimes I wish I didn't have such a good relationship with my parents." That's <laughs> what they said to us because they were saying, "Like, oh, it's it's awkward to work through some of the things that yeah. could, you know," but it wasn't. It they they were sort of being facetious, but also just it's, you know, some of the conversations you have to have with teenagers are really awkward. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we, and, you know, as parents, you're like, I don't want to have the awkward conversation any more than you do, but I want you to have the wisdom yeah. that I 
have gained through my failure experience and observations and study. And, you know, I want you to have that wisdom. Um, and so that you have to have those conversations, but it was so funny that, that comment, be it the, the, the sly, um, backhanded compliment. <laughs> yeah. I've seen in, um, well, yeah, we, we, I don't want to start a whole nother thing, but I've seen, um, in raising my oldest as a teenager now, um, I've seen the relationship adjust to there's moments where I am, the office is the same, but my conversation is like a little sister. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And, and so I haven't changed being her father, but I've learned that this is my sister in the Lord too. And so the way that I'm talking to her and developing her and the conversations we're having, him, there, there's, uh, at least in the modern time, there's certain conversations dads don't want to have. But uh, there's con- but there's conversations where brothers have with their sisters because they have they love them, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And but I'm seeing how some when when this double dutch happens, you know, the office hasn't changed. The authority hasn't changed. But the way it's communicated is with the love of a of a godly brother who loves his, his sister and wants her yeah. to grow up in godliness, you know. Um, and it's, yeah. that's been what, lovely. The way Aaron and I have talked about it is your kids start directly behind you. You're, you're, we're walking this way. Yep. They're directly behind yep. you. And then um, they, as they hit that kind of tweener years, they step out to the side. They're still behind you. They're still following, but they step out to the side and they can see not just the back of your head. You want them to be able to see forward. Yeah. Right. So you're still pointing things out as you go. Right? But then teenagers, they sort of step up next to you. Yeah. You walk with them. Right. Yeah. You're side by side, shoulder to shoulder. Um, and that that's the goal, right? Is you're still pointing things out. You're still it, um, you're you still have authority, but you're in an advisory role. Right. Um, yeah. Because they're shifting to when they grow up and you no longer have authority over them and you want them to come to you as an advisor. But it's a vol- you're now now right. You you go from an authoritative advisor advisor to a, a um a voluntary advisor, yeah. right? Yeah, right, right. But that's the that's how it's going anyway. Um, and but we want to keep them directly behind us all the time, and then just suddenly launch them, right? Instead of hopefully moving them into that uh, moving you you're moving into that advisory role in their lives. And they're going to make mistakes as teenagers. They're going to still sin, um, uh, but you know the the relationship that you have with them should be pointed at the next phase in each phase, right? You're always we're historical creatures raising historical creatures. We're maturing creatures raising maturing creatures. So you always want to be pointed at that next phase in each phase. Um, and then, you know, you launch them and hopefully they go much further than you. And, um, but you get to stay in that advisory role and that in enjoyment role. And, and, and a huge, I mean, I tell young parents this all the time when they're like, man, are the teenage years hard? You say, well, if you enjoy them when they're little, you'll enjoy them when they're teenagers. Yeah. Because it's the same. It, it's, it's a you thing. <laughs> yeah. That's right. When you quit. As teenagers, what you discover every time is, I didn't enjoy them very much before either, but I could control them then. Right, exactly. No, I- <laughs> exactly. Hey, can, next time, you know, um, s- since what, however we got launched into the Enlightenment, can we talk about the medieval mind next time? 
Yeah. I, I'm feeling like the, great. the more that you send me stuff and I'm reading kind of some C.S. Lewis stuff, <laughs> he was infatuated with the med- medieval mind. And, yeah. and I think it's because he understood how far off we were from, from it in the Enlightenment. Like we were in children of the Enlightenment. Right. And I yeah. think he knew like we had a broken cosmology, which is another thing why, you know, growing up Christian um, and living evangelicalism, we keep thinking what we need is a lot more um, theology, systematic theology, 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 theology. And it's like we, we, we do, but we don't understand that our theology is rooted in an enlightenment cosmology. <laughs> Right. So yeah. then what we're getting is fragments, broken fragments that we're trying to piece things together where Lewis was like, what you need is a realignment of the world that you live in, which is yep. why he wrote the kind of books he did, which makes more sense to me now. Cause I was like before, why would I read C.S. Lewis? I mean, he's read C.S. Lewis. I mean, he's read all this fiction, the Christian fiction, oh, get rid of the fiction. We live in the real world people. You know, like that was, and, and I think a lot of evangelicals are like, oh, they love Christian fiction, but then it doesn't mess with their cosmology either, right? Um, but yeah. C.S. Lewis is writing to try and tell you the world that you're embracing or loving, it, from what I'm seeing, and I'm, this is somebody who is very infantile in Lewis, okay? Um, this is not a far-fetched world. This is the world you live in. This is the, this is the world, you know? And so... Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it was him trying to bring bring in the medieval mind into which understood that and bring us into um a reality of the cosmos, you know. So yeah, he he was he was looking around and saying all of you people live in an in an imaginative universe. None of you are living in reality. And and it was the realists, you know, the realists <laughs> that he said are the most, um, that have most embraced an imaginative universe that, that are refusing to live in reality. Um, and you know, now you know, he, he, he's got a, a funny quote of Tolkien. He and Tolkien were, Tolkien was instrumental in leading him to the Lord. Um, it, and, uh, he, he said, at one point he was talking to Tolkien and Tolkien said, man, I'm getting a lot of, or I mean, Lewis said, I'm getting a lot of uh, pushback that we write escapist fantasy. And he said, you know, who's concerned about escape, the jailer. Dang. <laughs> it's like all the real, <laughs> he said all the real, all the real, all the realists didn't want escapist literature because they were, they were that, uh, you know, they were the slave that would turn you into master when you tried to escape. You know, <laughs> they they were the uh, the the fellow prisoner that would say, "Hey, he's digging a hole out the back of his." The ones who you tell know, on you that you, you got to take fireworks. that away. He's digging a <laughs> hole out of the prison. <laughs> Those um, same guys. That, and that all, all the realists were like that. All right. So um, what do I need to what do I need I to read for, to prep for next week? Then. Um, I mean. The, a new book just came out this year called the medieval the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis. 